Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode that you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. You know, we recently received an award, Tane, and it was unexpected, and we want to express some real deep thanks to the State Bar Journal. Yeah, and particularly to our, our friends, uh, uh, Sean LaGrua, Tish. Tisha Deer Jackson. Tish Deer, <laughs> Tisha Deer Jackson. Uh, so who are our friends, and we do appreciate Absolutely. them. They're awesome. We received the Spirit of Justice Award at the State Bar, and we were both surprised and humbled and uh, really shocked, to tell you the truth, <laughs> to receive that recognition, but much appreciated. You know, the award itself is pretty amazing. It's an actual piece of art. Yeah, and it looks like a tornado, which I thought was really important <laughs> for you and me, Wade. Absolutely. I understand, but it really is beautiful, and we're not attempting to blow our own horn for receiving an award. But instead, um, we're telling you about this amazing award uh, because it's really part of a larger conversation. That's right. Someone recently asked us why we record this podcast, and then somebody else asked us why we have led NJO, the new judge's orientation, for so long. Another person, a third person, and this all has happened in, since we last recorded, asked us why or how do we make this whole podcast thing work? And it sort of made us say, you know, we, we, we probably ought to talk about this for a second. Yeah. I mean, they were no, they were all separate conversations and there's no really single simple question or answer, but instead we decided to just take a minute and discuss why we record this podcast, why we care so much about uh, judge training and, uh, it's definitely not for the pay because no. we do not earn one penny uh, from leading the NJO or from recording the podcast. We we have probably discussed parts of what we're going to say today in other podcast episodes, but it bears repeating. When Tane and I became Superior Court judges, the NJO process was essentially broken. We sat through about a half-day discussion with a few substantive topics, and we were told some of the internal procedures relating to health insurance and stuff like that. And then we were patted on the head and said, go be good judges. And then we didn't be go be good judges. Uh, we went to became Wade and Tane. Yeah, well, there, there's that. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, that's why we thought that NJO needed to be revamped. And Wade and I had a lot of conversations about it. And then as to the podcast, why this works as a delivery platform for judges and others, it's probably directly related to, first of all, how well the two of us get along and how often we've co-taught uh, different courses and things together and continuing education sessions and also how important we think it is for judges and others to actually understand what happens in court and the why of why it happens so we try to make these episodes a little bit funny and entertaining i mean yeah, we try. It's probably probably not having that effect right now <laughs> yeah, this is not part of that um that's true but we do try to interject some silly sounds funny moments and other lighter things into these podcast episodes just to make it worthwhile for our listeners we're we're just glad that that someone thought that our format worked i mean that was the funny part that being asked the question <laughs> yeah, really and, and that does bring us to the bigger point that we wanted to make today uh, you know we make jokes about having a single listener and things like that but many See, chris yeah, thanks, Christopher. Uh, but many of you have chosen to reach out to us and, and to tell us that you do enjoy the podcast. And, and that makes it worthwhile uh, for all of the time and effort that we expend recording these episodes and trying to figure out what we're going to record them about. Uh, and we're, we are 
truly incredibly grateful that you choose to spend your valuable time listening to these two goofballs discuss the law, or at least what we think the law is. You know, this kind of reminds me of that time in 1985 when Sally Field won the Oscar. You remember that? <laughs> you like me. You, you like really me. Like you really like me. And I was sitting in the audience going, or, or sitting at home going, nah, I really don't. No, you were not in the audience. Smokey and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit. Come on. We don't need awards. It feels really nice to get one and to hear that that you, our listeners, like what we are doing here at the Good Judgment Podcast. Yeah. So, okay, enough gushing. Um, <laughs> let's talk about today's episode, Wade. Oh, yeah, we have an episode to record. I oh, forgot. Yeah. Um, well, that kind of was an episode, but go ahead. Let's talk about closing arguments in criminal cases. This will likely be, a, and it will be, a two-part episode. Yeah. Um, we were recently at the summer conference for Superior Court judges, and as usual, um, we received some materials that we want to use as the basis for a podcast episode. That's what we call borrowing some people call we, that plagiarism, but we, what do we do? What do we do to avoid the, <laughs> that horrible moniker of plagiarism, Wade? As usual, here at the Good Judgment Podcast, we shout out people that we steal from. I mean, borrow their materials, yeah, or find inspiration from. Usually, and in this case, it's Lena Donikowski. 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 Yeah. And I apologize if uh, I said that wrong. She is an assistant DA in Cobb County, yeah. one of your folks. Shout out to one of my homies. And peeps. she's now the head of their appellate services. Awesome. And she did a great job at the summer conference uh, with this particular uh, with this particular topic. I had the pleasure of knowing Linda uh, during my time at the Cobb County bench, and she's awesome. So anyway, go so ahead, Wade. As usual, we're shouting her out today in our unique way of crediting authors and others from whom we get our inspiration. That's better than saying stealing it. It is, yeah. And for our podcast topics, we're going to discuss things about closing arguments that were not a part of our presentation. And, and that's why this is going to end up being a two-part episode. Yeah. So, so our shout out now is completed to Linda Donikowski. But if you yourself have podcast ideas, please, please send them to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And with all that being said, you'll get your own shout out on our podcast. So let's start talking about closing arguments. So, you know, Tane, lawyers are ta taught in law school, I think now, how, just how important and how effective closing arguments have been. We probably taught that forever. I'm, I'm going to be teaching people that starting tomorrow. There you go. Of fact. Yeah. So we've all seen those rousing TV or movie closing arguments where someone made some pro just profound statement and they pointed to the guy in the back and he tried to escape because he's really the guy who shot the gun and all of that. But as judges we've seen some arguments that were less than that. <laughs> I think we can just say they were less than. They were less than. Yes. Mm -hmm. They were the symbol that points in <laughs> from right to left. <laughs> Not left to right. Not left to right. So in today's episode, we're going to discuss closing arguments generally, and then we're going to get into some of the permissible and impermissible topics for closing arguments. Awesome. Now, we have seen a pronounced trend in recent years for – themes, you know, where a party tries to establish a theme in an opening statement and maybe even in their voir dire, uh, and then extend that theme into the closing arguments. Um, we've seen some like this case is all about greed. This case is one bad apple didn't spoil the whole bunch, or if he can't have her, nobody else can that kind of stuff. Right? I've heard, I've heard this one 200 times. This case is all about choices. Okay. <laughs> See, good and bad. And, and then and that theme strategy, I think, is taught in trial practice classes in law school. It yeah, seems to be. I, te I teach it in my class. And, and I know, it, let's be clear, it can work. Yeah. 
I it mean, just needs to not be cheesy. And 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 <laughs> if it if you lose your theme for some reason, if the I think all of this the the problem with it is that it all comes down to you're really counting a one star witness saying this one thing, this one phrase, in exactly this way. Yeah. And if it doesn't go right, now your whole thing's blown up. So for younger lawyers and and for people who are interested in trying cases, my only suggestion about the copy the the topic of themes, it's great. Just don't hang it on one person saying one thing the way you're begging they, they'll, they'll say it. Yeah, because if that glove had fit, that screwed up the whole closing argument, right? If that, glo- if that glove does fit, you have to admit? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, see, I can say yeah, wouldn't, that would have been bad. Yeah, that would bad. That would have screwed up the whole thing. So we've had lawyers, particularly young lawyers, Tane, ask us for our advice over the years. While we were judges in, in different contexts, and I know you're doing some teaching here at UGA. I'm trying. Um, I'm not always sure what, because they always want you to know what makes a great trial lawyer, right? I'm not sure that can be taught always. I don't think it comes in a package. Yeah. I mean, I think there has to be something in your personality to be, I, I think, I think that that's what sets apart a really great trial lawyer from, from a good trial lawyer. I think there are certain things you can learn that'll make you a decent trial lawyer, but I think there's those really good ones just have something ingrained in there. It's like a musician almost, you know, they just have something in their DNA that sets them apart. That Lots make, of people can play the piano, but Elton John is Elton John. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that makes them greater than that's the symbol that goes from left to right. Anyway. Okay. Um, but yeah. And there's a perception to be effective at closing. The, the, the lawyer has to be something akin to a fire and brimstone Baptist preacher. Yeah, but I mean, if that's not your normal style way, I mean, you've seen it where somebody's trying to pretend to be someone that they're not. It, it just comes across as someone who's just getting loud during closing <laughs> argument. You know exactly. what I mean? They're just yelling. <laughs> and so we think that it's important to understand that there can be really effective lawyers in different types. I have seen, and, and I'm happy for you to tell me that you've seen different, two basic styles, and there could be variations on this theme either a preacher or a teacher. Most people call preacher or professor. Yeah, I think so. I think that you can teach the jury how it is they should rule, Mm -hmm. or you could move the jury emotionally to try to get where you want them to be. And both can be incredibly effective. But I think, and we we talk about this at NJO with new judges, you have to be who you are. I I totally agree with that. I I have I have tried cases with people who I thought were fantastic trial lawyers. And when I finished the case, you know, I'd look at at what they did and say, okay, what of that can I do, you know, in my future presentations? And one of the things that I came to the conclusion of is there were some of those people that I just couldn't be like because I didn't, that was not me. It wasn't my personality. You weren't tall or you didn't speak slowly or have a Southern drawl or whatever. Yeah, And and even for some of them, you know, they were able to use an affected Southern drawl that the jury knew was an affected Southern drawl, but somehow they could get away with that. I could have never gotten away with that. You know, you sound like a Southern Colonel. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, I see, I see. Yeah. (laughs) Like foghorn, leghorn, young kids out there will not know who I'm talking about. But I really do think that that it's important that one of the first places that lawyers, especially young lawyers, start out is is the mirror. They have to understand who they are, and then they have to pick and and choose different aspects of great people they think are great lawyers and put that in their their tool belt. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I really do. 
So all this uh, foregoing, I guess, internal analysis is wasted if you don't understand the rules concerning closing arguments. You come to closing arguments, you start doing stupid stuff, and you're going to get in trouble, and it's going to just blow you up your whole theme. So let's start with the basics. And remember, we're discussing criminal cases today. We might discuss civil cases in some other point in time. That's right. So, so one of the beginning points is that the state has the right to have an opening and a concluding argument. And we've cited in the materials where, the, where that comes from, statutory. Um, and the defendant kind of gets sandwiched in between the state's arguments. The, now, you remember saying that wasn't always the way it was. No, that's right. There was a time where even in criminal cases, still the case in civil cases, but there was there was a time in criminal cases where if the defendant didn't put up any evidence, the defendant got to go first and last. And and that law has been not that way for about 20 years now, a little over 20 years in criminal cases. But just understand that that created a whole circus of did the defendant admit evidence when they cross-examined somebody with a prior inconsistent statement? I just remember going round and round and round about this because everybody wanted the last word. Right. Yeah. It, it all goes back to those psychological terms of primacy and recency, you know, that that are things that we tend to remember as human beings in some certain part of our brain. I don't know if it's the ab- the doula oblong medulla oblongata or what part of the brain it is. But anyway, I don't even, I can't even believe I said that on the air. But and since <laughs> now I want to make this clear. We're not dealing with a death penalty case because right. that's not the rule in a, in a penalty phase. Correct. And there's several things that we're going to talk about here that are verboten in, <laughs> yeah. in closing arguments that is not true in death penalty but cases. But one of these days we're going to talk about death penalty cases. Whew, that's going to be a long episode. <laughs> it's going to be a bunch of episodes. But anyway, remember also, and again, this is this is statutory. Actually, this is in the rule, but uh, there are time limitations for closing arguments, and uh, and judges and juries hope that those never become relevant because they're pretty long time they frames. Uh, but I did have to cut somebody off once in did a non capital case. Uh, it went well over the time limit, and uh, I gave him a little leeway, and then I kind of had to say, "Yeah, you got, yeah, you you got two that. more minutes." Yeah. <laughs> So unless the extension is granted before arguments begin, so if you have a long case or a big case, and we, we know that there's some cases rolling around that right now with some notoriety around the state, you'd have to ask before arguments begin. But unless it's granted in a felony case where there is a potential of the death penalty, which we're not talking about, or life in prison, two hours each side, any other felony case, one hour each side, any misdemeanor, 30 minutes each side. Now, I've always thought this is kind of amusing because the time limitation on a civil case where only your property is at stake is two hours. But where your liberty is at stake, except for a life sentence or a death penalty, just one hour. Yeah, that'll be enough, (laughs) sir. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, sir. There are also some rules about how many lawyers can argue the case, like if you have multiple lawyers representing the same party. That's right. Those are um, in the outline, though. We've got those citations for you, so you don't have to spend too much time yeah. on that. Talking just about know that. that only one lawyer can have the last say argument. So you can't you can't, can't split that. You can't do the WWE tag team thing and call in the closer <laughs> to do the up over the ring up, rope. Yeah, yeah make okay, the tag. you got five minutes left. You kill them. <laughs> um, in case anybody needs a citation to authority, the use of PowerPoint and closing argument is allowed generally. Just make sure that you have the ability to display said PowerPoint. And if it has sound that you can play said sound and you're not counting on my uh, courtroom pre-made right. presentation system, because at the pageant division of Superior Court, it never works. <laughs> well, and let me say one other thing about PowerPoint. I will not give my full rant here because we don't have time. But this is my rule. OK, this is my general rule about PowerPoint. If you suck at PowerPoint, don't 
use PowerPoint. <laughs> Is that why we're on the radio? But get, yeah, exactly. But get <laughs> but get better at PowerPoint. I mean, yeah. I see people who just don't understand how to use PowerPoint. They're they're terrible at it. So anyway, just just do that. All right. Let's talk about use of props during closing. Right. Holding stuff up, Wade. All right. So so it remains discretionary with the court whether to allow quote demonstrative devices in a closing argument. There is going to be, and you're going to see this thing, there's going to be a noticeable difference between evidence that has been admitted in the trial and something you picked up at the at the convenience store on the way coming in today. So like if in the murder case that I tried years ago, if the state had wanted to come and take the hammer that the defendant beat the victim with and let's say bring in a mannequin and start smashing that mannequin's skull. See, that becomes more <laughs> of an experiment. Yeah. Those um, are the types of things that you've really got to have a handle on and yeah. know that, whoa, 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 we might want to put a stop to this. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So the Supreme Court has approved the use of, and they use the word props, maps, charts, or other analogous model or in, um, illustrative material. Yeah, thank kind you. Of stuff. Yeah, in closing argument, when based on evidence that has been admitted, and and you're going to see in just a minute, we're going to give you some examples of things that well, that's kind of based on the material, but it, uh, that was admitted, it's kind of not. So just know before you put a whole lot of stock in waving this thing around that you're going to wave around during closing argument, that it's going to be allowed. Yeah. And, and I would, I would encourage you. I mean, if there's something that you have in a PowerPoint that you're not sure whether the judge is going to agree that was admitted or that that's a, appropriate for you to put in front of the jury, you might need to ask before you get in front of the jury. You know, that brings up a great point. I had a trial once where they wanted to show in the PowerPoint closing how the wreck happened. Right. And so they wanted to to do this demonstration of this other possibility of what may have happened. And it became more of an experiment than it was a demonstration of existing evidence. Oh, so, yeah. Those animations became huge for a while, and particularly in civil cases, but also in criminal cases. And so you you got to be careful with that, because if you do that, you could blow the whole trial up at the very end in closing argument. In PowerPoints, back to that one more time, um, I've seen people take still photos out of admitted vid, like surveillance videos. I thought that's been pretty effective. Like, you couldn't, you know, the surveillance video is kind of grainy and you see the person moving by, but in this one still taken off of it, you can see the gun in the hand. And I think that based on the technology we have today, that's probably fair game. I do too. Yeah. But your PowerPoint can include like the Facebook picture of the defendant. 
that wasn't admitted during the trial to say, well, this is him. And, and you see, he's got the scar on his leg. Like, and he's, hold, and he's throwing a gang sign. Yeah. Or he's yeah. holding the gun. Right. You can't do that. Nope. Um, the, the Georgia appellate courts have really attempted over the years, and there's been several opportunities for them to discuss this, to clarify where the lawyer can use a fake gun or a wiffle ball bat to, to demonstrate how the actual bat that was admitted at trial might have been used or a five-pound bag, bag of sugar to demonstrate the, the, the five-pound trigger pull that the expert testified to. And we've got citations in here, but you're going to see, and we're going to talk about it as we go through, um, what what is allowed and what is not allowed. Yeah. Now, the underlying rule is pretty simple. It's that you can generally display admitted exhibits and even potentially dis- demonstrate how particular admitted exhibits were used. But you cannot perform, as Wade was saying a minute ago, experiments or introduce into the trial new evidence. All right. So consider a couple of examples. At trial, it was established that the gun in question had a 20-pound trigger pull, which is rather significant. The argument being that there's no way that person could have pulled the trigger. They were small or whatever. During closing arguments, the prosecutor had a hot colleague come forward who weighed about 100 pounds, a very small person. He had the colleague pull the trigger of the gun in front of the jury, which she could easily do. The defendant objected. Judge, I object. This wasn't discussed during the trial. The Supreme Court of Georgia reversed that conviction. They said the prosecutor's actions introduced new evidence during the closing argument. The fact that a small person could easily pull the trigger of the gun in question. This fact was specifically used to respond to appellant's evidence that the trigger was extremely difficult to pull. Appellant had no chance to rebut the prosecutor's demonstration, a demonstration that could easily have been performed during trial when both sides could have fleshed out the implications thoroughly. This demonstration should have taken place during the trial or not at all. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. But that was still a pretty awesome reading, Wade, no matter what. So, you know, the the yeah, the yeah Supreme Court referred to what Wade just read as an experiment. Now, compare that case to the following case. A prosecutor used a hammer during closing after telling the jury it was not evidence and was not the hammer that was used in the, as the actual murder weapon to argue how a hammer might well have been the murder weapon because the evidence strongly suggested a hammer was used in the crime. And the Supreme Court said that was okay. To be clear, the use of any prop during a closing is always within the trial court's discretion, and it's dangerous to assume that your judge will exercise that discretion in any way that allows the use of the prop. So consider these two examples. Tell them about the the 18-inch the eighteen inch yeah. rule. Yeah, so the trial court allowed a prosecutor to use a piece of wood, 18 inches in length, to make a demonstration as to how the sawed-off shotgun that was admitted might have been used. That was affirmed on, on appeal. And that gun was 18 inches long, so yeah. he was showing how you could move with, with something 18 inches long in your hands. Mm-hmm. Now, what about the next one, though, Wayne? So the bat was used in a crime. Everybody, it was admitted. It had broken during the crime, and, and it was like a piece of it was left. The lawyer attempted to use a wiffle ball bat during closing that was not, in fact, broken. The court did not allow the use of the wiffle ball bat, affirmed on appeal. And you're going to start noticing a trend. It's within the judge's discretion, and appellate judges are not going to reverse it unless there is a clear abuse of that discretion. Right. And I don't blame them because I hate wiffle ball. 
That's just ridiculous. <laughs> so it, the point of this entire conversation is that it is within the, the court's discretion, as you said, Wade. And, and thank goodness we have the ability as judges to exercise that. Now, if you're going to allow a party to use a prop during closing argument to make a demonstration, judges are advised that many of the appellate decisions uh, that approve that practice noted repeatedly that the jury was advised that the knife, the gun, the bat, et cetera, being shown to them by the lawyer was not evidence and was not claimed to be the thing that was used in the commission of the crime. I don't know that always gives you clearance, but it helps. Yeah. <laughs> the basic rule in closing arguments is that lawyers should be afforded, quote, all reasonable latitude, end quote, in their argument and in, in, in arguing his or her case before the jury. There are limitations to that broad latitude, and they include several clear prohibitions. And then there's some tame, they're not yeah, quite not as clear quite as Yeah, not quite as <laughs> clear as mud. So let's start, let's start with what's fair, always going to be fair game. Sure. So first of all, you can you can almost always talk about any inconsistencies in the evidence, right, Wade? Yeah, if it was admitted and 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 this person was inconsistent with that one, or they were inconsistent was inconsistent with themselves, yeah, with some statement. prior statement they made or something like that, you can always talk about that. Credibility concerns of a witness and even the defendant, if the defendant testifies. Yeah, yeah, I've always told lawyers, for some odd reason, this is just human psychology. Calling someone a liar. You better make sure you prove they lied about something important because there's just something about unsavory about calling somebody a liar when they lied or or misspoke about something insignificant. I've seen some lawyers do this effectively. They said, "Now, I'm not calling them a liar." <laughs> But let me just tell but you what they said. their pants are actually on fire. <laughs> if you look closely. They're, they're smoking. <laughs> their pants are smoking. Um, it's always fair game to argue that a witness received any sort of benefit for testifying, tame, like being paid if you're an expert or whatever, or avoiding a jail sentence if you're a cooperating witness, something like that. Yeah, and and I think we touched on this, but prior consistent and inconsistent statements, always, always fair game there. You can always talk about deficiencies made by the opposing party, and there's more on this in part two of this episode. One more cliffhanger for you. Dun-dun-dun. But you can always point out deficiencies in the case made by the opposing party. Yeah, you can. And here's one that you see in almost every case, especially if lawyers are doing their job, um, explaining the law. Yeah, you know, because you the can, law is always so clear. Well, that's just it. I mean, you know, the, one of the things that closing argument can be most effective for is the jury's about to be charged on the law and you can tell them, here's what's coming. Here's what the judge is about to tell you. And here's why this is important. And here's what it means. So you can always do that. But it has to be, if they talk about the law, it has to be on the law or the charge that the judge is actually going to give, right, Tane? Yeah, it's it's bad if you start talking about law that's never going to come before the jury or certainly law that the judge has already said he or she is not going to give. Now, you can read a portion of the charge. I've seen some old cases that seem to somehow criticize this, but I don't like it's kind of got abandoned and never got addressed. If you're going to take the charge I'm going to give you and flip three pages back and read section 144.10, the judge is going to tell you that the crime has to be committed in the county of Columbia and the state of Georgia or whatever. You can do that. That's absolutely fine. Just don't read something that is either not yet admitted or, I mean, you should already know this because the charge count, the charge conference has to happen before closing argument. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I see people put portions of the charge up on their PowerPoints now. Um, you can, urge the jury to convict 
on lesser included offenses. I mean, that kind of makes sense. That's how you get to the lesser included offenses to say you're also going to hear that there's the opportunity to convict on, you know, aggravated battery or, or, or battery instead of aggravated battery. Um, you can always talk about applying the law to the facts, even if you get a little um, fanciful in how you say it. Yeah. And, and in fact, you, yeah, you can, you can argue things that are dumb or inconsistent. I mean, or, you know, the, the, there's cases out there. The that appellate say, courts don't say dumb. They kind of do. They I mean, say, <laughs> um, illogical, illogical or inconsistent. Yeah. yeah they use yeah. words like that. Yeah. Um, you can ask the jurors to put aside their prejudice or bias. Uh, you know, you might want to be careful about that. You're assuming some things you don't necessarily know, but yeah, you may want to go in there and say, Hey, look, put, folks, put aside their sympathy, for example. Yeah. Like, Hey, I know that, that I know the victim in this case is, is pitiful, but, but that's not my client's fault. You can always argue stuff like that. And I've seen, you know, lawyers effectively argue, Hey, my client's not necessarily the greatest person in the world, but because of that, you shouldn't necessarily convict them because the state hasn't proven it's, it's case. You can always use, um, urge the jury to follow the law. I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit more in, in part two, um, using figurative speech and, and, and sort of drawing analogies, things like that. You can absolutely do that. And one of the most common ones <laughs> is you can urge the jury to use their common sense. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. And of course you do analogies. So Tane, tell me in your experience, um, what has been one of the more effective ways that you've heard people draw an analogy to beyond a reasonable doubt? We're going to talk about what you can't say in part two, but I've heard people talk about, um, not beyond all doubt. I, I've heard talk of people talk about you go to bed and it's raining or, or it sounds like it's going to rain, but you didn't see it rain. You wake up the next morning and everything's wet. Is it possible that an alien spacecraft came down and wet all the ground and then flew away. Well, that's possible, I guess. Is that likely? Is that reasonable? Have you had anything that, that you can think of where somebody, either on, on either side, either did something incredibly effective that you thought, is there anything that stands out? No, I, I, I've seen some that I thought were pretty cheesy. Um, and, and I don't remember that any that stand out that were particularly good. They were frequently things like what you were talking about, about it raining or snowing. You know, I come outside and, you know, the ground is white and, you know, I see all these things and I think hmm, it must have snowed after I went to sleep. Um, I just I don't remember anything that were particularly awesome. Did you did you? Well, have there was one thing and, I, and, and this was a trial I was actually involved with as a prosecutor yeah. where there was a theme back back to all. You know, here's a call back to the very beginning of this episode where the lawyer repeatedly referred to his client as innocent as rain, innocent as rain, innocent as rain. I mean, he said it 40 hundred times. Mm -hmm. So in my last word, class saved it to the last word. My last word, I said, you know, I'm here opposing counsel talk about his client being innocent as rain. What about acid rain? You know, the stuff that it looks innocent enough, <laughs> but underneath there's this whole thing. And it was just a oh, way. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a smush. Yeah. Um, it felt pretty good because I came up with that in my own little brain. That's fantastic. Um, the other Judge Padgett didn't come up with that? No. Oh, that's amazing. So it was, I guess what we're saying is if you're going to use a theme, be careful, especially if you're in the same circuit over and over and again and you're going to do the same thing because, because I've seen lawyers tear up when they start talking about, you have my client's life in your hands. And, and, and I've seen the other lawyer in there 
first part of their closing argument said, now in just a minute, counsel's going to start getting weepy with you because <laughs> he does it every time. And it's like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah. So just be careful with themes and things like that. But those are all the things. That, those are all fair games. But Tame, I think it's better that we, that we stop right here. Yeah. For this first part of this episode. And we'll discuss some more of the hotly contested issues dealing with closing arguments and the topics that are absolutely forbidden in the second part of this episode. Well, for a guy who doesn't like to leave cliffhangers, Wade, you have left quite a cliffhanger there. I know. Yeah. But we do need to leave you with these two things. That's right. First of all, folks, if you want to send us an email with a topic suggestion, a comment, or anything else, please do so at our email address at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And if you want to check out the outlines, et cetera, go to goodjudgepod.com. So with that, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And folks, don't worry. Just because this is a two-part episode, don't think we were going to leave you without a music trivia fact for the day. So... It's time that we change music genres for a minute. Uh, Today, we're going to discuss an amazing artist, Garth Brooks. His real government name is, I love this, Trayall Garth Brooks. (laughs) Glad he didn't change that middle name. Um, Garth has always been a bit of a music nerd, kind of like us, uh, but with much more talent. Uh, He named his first child Taylor after the icon James Taylor. I thought it was about after Taylor Swift. No. Uh, Okay, yeah. His child is older than Taylor Swift. Correct. Um, He was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in in 2012, uh, into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2011, and the Musicians Hall of Fame in 2016. Now, finally, I want you to consider the number of monster hits that appeared on Garth's album, No Fences. Okay. For those of you who know anything about country, you have heard of all of these. First of all, Thunder Rolls, huge hit. Friends in Low Places. I've heard that played at so many wedding receptions um, over the years. Um, Unanswered Prayer, great song. Uh, And Two of a Kind, Working on a Full House. All of those songs were on that same album, Fences. So here comes the question. In what year was Friends in Low Places awarded Single of the Year by the Academy of Country Music? And I'm going to bet you guess older than it actually won. Give up? 1990. Maybe it's just me, but it doesn't seem old enough. Uh, And also many of our listeners weren't even born by that time. So, uh, you know, but... uh, Dang, I'm getting old, Wade. Well, anyway, folks, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try our best to give you actionable information, but in a format that does not make you want to hurt yourself. Two thoughts. Some topics allow us the latitude to be a little bit more fun. Number two, if we've failed you, we will try to do our best to do better in the next episode. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose us this time. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former director, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law, my new part-time employer, Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. 
We should have been singing your praises all along, but we didn't, so... Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges all across Georgia. Wade and I are also grateful to the State Justice Institute who allow us to do this through their generosity. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, SJI, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact someone else with your complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Please visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all our episode outlines and more details about our podcasts. Some of you send emails asking for copies of the outlines. Seriously, people, they're available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. And we say that like 20 times during every broadcast. But seriously, you can upload or download or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule and at your convenience. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.